And as you take your seat, you can open with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we've been in a series of messages through Paul's letter to the Romans. And we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 11 this morning. I realize we have the first 24 verses listed as the reading for today, but I'm only going to make it to verse 15. As I've done in the past, I got a little overly ambitious about how much to cover. And uh, throughout the course of the week, I realized that the first 15 verses would be a suitable text for this Lord's Day. You remember in chapters 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul is giving information about Israel, God's plan for the Israelites, and the future of Israel as it is related to salvation for the Gentiles. In the beginning of each chapter, Paul has expressed concern for his fellow Jews. He did it in chapter 9, he did it in chapter 10, and today, even in chapter 11, he begins with a question that expresses concern for his fellow Israelites. If I were to summarize the first 15 verses of this passage in a statement, it would be this. Our God is faithful and always active in the lives of his chosen people for his glory and our salvation. Our God is faithful and always active in the lives of his chosen people for his glory and for our salvation. I want you to notice in connection to that theme three things this morning that I believe are in this passage. Number one, I want you to notice God's faithfulness to his people. And we see that in verses one through six. And then secondly, God's sovereign choice of his people. And we see that in verses seven through ten. And then finally, God's creative, redemptive activity amongst his people. And we see that in verses 11 through 15. So along with an outline of the message, join me in prayer. And let's ask God to bless by his spirit our time of study this morning in his word. Lord, give us grace now. We rely totally upon you, Lord Jesus, to use your word in the fabric of our hearts, that, Lord, you would bring forth your good, pleasing, and perfect will in all of our lives and in our world. And so bless us now with confident reliance upon thee and thy Holy Spirit. And we'll give you the praise and glory for the outcome as we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, I want you to notice God's faithfulness to his people. In verses 1 through 6, Paul begins with a rather arresting question. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. The fact that God chose Saul of Tarsus, or excuse me, given all that the apostle has said throughout chapters 9 and 10, one might think that God had abandoned his people. I mean, if you go back to chapter 10, you consider the final verse in that chapter. It says this. He says, all day long, Paul speaking for God, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. One would think that Paul, speaking for 
the Lord God would communicate to us that God is done, that he is finished with the Jews as his covenant people. Nevertheless, Paul offers a resounding no in answer to this question. And I want you to notice he does so by offering four pieces of evidence. First of all, there is personal evidence. Why has God not rejected his people? Personal evidence. Look at verse 1b. He says, For I too am an Israelite, descended of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul points to his own life as evidence that God has not abandoned his chosen people. The fact that God used Saul of Tarsus, a Jewish Pharisee, and changed his entire substance and the course of his life proves that God is not finished with his people. Paul's logic goes like this. If God was completely finished with his chosen people, Israel, then why in the world would he choose a Jewish man who was a notorious offender against Christ and his church? Paul would say, my personal testimony speaks volumes that God is not finished with his people. A second piece of evidence is theological. Look at verse 2a. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul uses the first part of verse 2 to reemphasize the question in verse 1. Has God rejected his people? And now in answering that question, Paul says, Has God rejected his people whom he foreknew? His chosen people, the people of the covenant, which he has declared unbreakable. You see what Paul is doing? In Romans 8, 29, we learn that to foreknow means to choose or to love in advance. And so Paul is emphasizing the fact that these are God's chosen people, that he is foreknown. And although here it means the nation of Israel, not an elect remnant, whom is God is said to have foreknown, still foreknowledge and rejection are mutually incompatible. Theologically, God has not rejected his people. But notice there's a piece of historical evidence. Thirdly, look at verse 2b through verse 4. Paul goes back many centuries to the time of the prophet Elijah. And this is significant because conditions were so bad in Elijah's day with the worship of Baal and the ruthless, ungodly leadership of Ahab and especially his wife Jezebel that the prophet Elijah would say, Lord, in verse 3, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. We know this was a very dark period in Israel's history because Elijah ran for his life from Jezebel, who threatened to kill him after what he did with the prophets of Baal. And Elijah reached Mount Carmel, or excuse me, Mount Horeb, as you know, after running 40 days and nights, and he had an encounter with the living God. And as the Lord made his presence known to Elijah on that mountain, he spoke to him with the response that Paul is pointing to in verse 4. What is the divine response? Paul says, I have kept, the Lord saying, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul corrects Elijah's arithmetic. Elijah thinks, I'm the only one. And the Lord says, no. I've kept 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So it's clear from God's word historically to Elijah that the Lord had not abandoned his people completely. No, he had kept a remnant for himself and his glory. 
And through this example, Paul makes it clear that God has not abandoned his covenant-chosen people. A faithful remnant remains, no matter how dark things might be. So we have personal evidence, we have theological evidence, we have historical evidence, and then finally, contemporary evidence. Look at verses 5 and 6. Paul concludes that the Lord has always preserved a remnant amongst his people, even to the present time or present day, he says in verse 5. Just as in Elijah's day there was a remnant of 7,000, so too at the present time, namely in Paul's day, there is a remnant. It was probably sizable, too. We know from Acts 21, verse 20, James soon told Paul in Jerusalem that there were many thousands of Jews embracing the faith, many thousands of Jews that were coming to faith in Christ. And so Israel's national apostasy was not complete. There is a remnant. And Paul makes it clear that the reason or basis of this preservation is God's gracious choice in verse 6, not on the basis of works. That's a theme that he has been emphasizing all the way through. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not as a result of works. And even back, way back before the beginning of time, God's choice and usage of the Jews was a matter of God's grace and not works. I think that's encouraging in this day and time, especially with the war going on over in the Middle East. It's a sad thing to see. Terrorists bombing and killing women and children and men, innocent bystanders. But we can take heart that God has a purpose, and God always has a remnant. We don't know why things happen the way they do, except the fact that we live in a world that is so stained by sin and so corrupt that people would live and commit such atrocities. But God has a remnant of his chosen people. Now, we need to move one step further, and that is God's sovereign choice of his people. Paul kind of gives a word of application here, beginning in verse 7. What then? We almost say, so what? What difference does it make? Well, Paul is emphasizing something he's been emphasizing throughout all three of these chapters, 9, 10, and 11, that God has a sovereign choice who will be his child. In verse 7a, Paul refers to something Israel is seeking. What is this? Well, we find the answer back in Romans 9, 30, and 31. That says that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, failed in reaching that law. Israel has been seeking after or pursuing a law of righteousness. You remember they believe that possession of God's law makes them righteous in God's sight. But Paul has already made it abundantly clear that no one will be justified or declared righteous by the works of the law. He did that in verse, or excuse me, chapter 3. And so he says Israel was seeking something, but they didn't find it. You'll notice in the latter part of verse 7, he says, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Paul again distinguishes between Israel according to the flesh and Israel according to the promise. God chose some Israelites to be recipients of his grace and mercy. They are the ones who were chosen in this passage. 
And he makes it clear that the rest were hardened. Then look at verses 8 through 10. Paul backs up this assertion with quotations from the Old Testament, specifically from Moses and David. Look at Deuteronomy 29.2. When we go back there, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all this land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. Verse 4 of Deuteronomy 29. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. That is an arresting passage. And what it communicates is simply this. Seeing is not believing. Tangible evidence will never convict anyone. What must happen is that God, by a sovereign act of His will, must open our blind eyes, unplug our stopped-up ears, and pull back the blinders on our hard heart. And only then will we embrace Only then will we reach out to embrace Him because He has first reached out to embrace us. Let me challenge you with that this morning. If you're here and you have little to no interest in these things, you may want to consider asking God to pull back the blinders on your heart, to unstop your ears, to open your eyes to your need of salvation. Because God is at work calling out a people for Himself. And this hardening that is talked about here is a judicial hardening. What that means is God is simply giving human beings and sinners over to what they want. Look at the psalmist quote from David. He says, Let their own table before them become a snare when they are at peace. Let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. This is regarded as one of the Messianic Psalms. David is speaking on behalf of Messiah. As Messiah complains that there are those that persecute him, that are those that are against him as God's anointed one. And Paul is able to reverse the application. Instead of Israel being persecuted, she has become, in her rejection of Christ, the persecutor. You see, there's no neutral ground. Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. And if you're against me, you're persecuting me. If you're with me, you are forgiven and you have a sense of peace. But here, Paul is laboring what he's already labored to point out in chapter 9, that God has a sovereign choice of His people, and that ought to cause us to tremble. If you struggle with this doctrine... Let me challenge you. Don't try to make God into your image. Don't try to fashion a God of your imagination based on how you may operate in this world, based on your judgment. Look at the Word. I'm not the editor. I'm just the errand boy. And part of the beauty of preaching God's Word is that His Spirit moves on our hearts. And he gives us a much bigger picture of who he is than we had before. 
we begin to realize that this sovereign Lord of the universe is over all things. He has known me before the foundation of the earth. He has chosen me unto salvation. He sent his one and only Son to die in my place as my sin-bearing substitute. Now he promises to bring me through after giving me forgiveness of sins and eternal life, that he will preserve me to the end. As we've often said, the controversy is not that God would save some and not others. The controversy is, why would God save any of us? He's not obligated to show us his grace and mercy, but he has chosen to, to open our eyes and open our ears and bring us into eternal life. God's sovereign choice of his people. God's faithfulness to his people. Now, we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning looking at number three, God's creative, redemptive activity amongst his people in verses 11 through 15. I love the way the Lord works. You can't outguess him. You can't sidestep it. You can't come up with a situation that is so complicated that he can't undo. And further, that he not only undoes, but he can bring a blessing out of. And that's what we see in these verses. I want you to notice two things. First of all, he uses Jewish transgression to bring Gentile salvation. Look at verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, and the gist there is to fall completely. May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Paul again answers with an emphatic, may it never be. Have they fallen completely? Have they fallen irreversibly? No. There's hope. Because a sovereign God with an eternal decree has willed it so. I'm amazed by the Lord's ability to turn Israel's failure into triumph. Only God could do that. Our Lord did not seek to save the Gentiles as some plan B, based on Israel's failure. Some people, even Christians, have a very small and limited view of God. And this goes along with the inability, I suppose, to understand the sovereignty of God. God doesn't wait till we act and then put plan B or plan C into action. He's always had it planned this way. He's always had it planned in his sovereign, eternal counsel that he would use the failure of his own people to fulfill all of the Old Testament scriptures that speak of his love for Gentiles. And here he says, Jewish transgression, oddly enough, God will use to bring Gentile salvation. This text, as well as the whole of Old Testament, reminds us that this was God's plan always. He's never caught off guard by unbelief, by sin, or by failure. And the fact that the Lord has reached out to the Gentiles, to all non-Jews, is not an afterthought. God is not responding to the sin or the transgression of his chosen people. He is using it sovereignly for his glory. And he is going after the Gentiles. Notice the second thing. He uses Gentile salvation to generate Jewish jealousy. Look at verses 12 through 16. 
Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Verse 12, Paul is excited. He mentions jealousy. Excuse me, verse 11, he mentions jealousy at the tail end of the verse. Now he explains his thinking. And once again, Paul reveals his undying hope for the salvation of his fellow Jews. He's excited as he describes God's mysterious and creative activity. Look at these verses. Jewish transgression leads to riches for the world. Jewish failure means Gentile riches. And Jewish fulfillment will mean greater riches for all. That's essentially what Paul is saying here. That the Lord God Almighty is using the failure of his people sovereignly to bring in Gentiles. And their transgression doesn't lead to poverty. It leads to riches for the world. Their failure to embrace the Messiah will lead to Gentile riches. And Paul even looks forward to the future. The Jewish fulfillment. How much greater will all the riches be for all peoples if they would turn to Christ? I think about the Middle East and I think about all the bloodshed and the problems over there between Jews and Muslims. And when I think about that, I think how all things could be reconciled if both groups turn to the living God who has made himself known in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hearts would melt. Selfishness would disappear. People would become servants of one another rather than murderers of one another. What a marvelous thing it will be. And one day it will be, I believe. But not now. Not now. Paul goes on in verse 13 to magnify his ministry. As an apostle of the Gentiles, he is rejoicing over God's activity in his life and the specific calling God has given him. Isn't that amazing? You know, most Jewish men, Pharisees, would object. God told me to go serve in this capacity. I want you to be one who reaches the Gentiles. Paul says, no, this is God's plan for my life. Maybe God is calling you to do something that is difficult, that is unsavory, or something that is more hidden than someone else would dare to do. Maybe God needs you to rejoice. The Lord wants you to rejoice in what he's called you to do. In the place where he has you, you can rejoice. Because just as God is sovereign in your salvation, he's also sovereign in your service to him and his body. Paul returns in verse 14 to the topic of jealousy. Making Jews jealous of Gentiles. Why? Because Paul maintains the hope that God will always sustain a remnant of his people among the Jews. You see, what Paul is saying is, as the Jews look to the change in the Gentiles, as the Jews see Christ in the Gentiles, and see those Gentiles living out the law of God, not written on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of their own heart, that the Jews would begin to say, I want what that person has. Paul says that they have a relationship with the God I've been brought up to love and to respect, but I don't have what they have. And I'm jealous of that. What must I do to be saved? 
And you'll notice in verse 15, Paul offers a color commentary concerning the Jews who embrace Christ. He says in verse 15, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Most scholars believe that Paul is making a reference here to Ezekiel 37. You remember that great chapter where God came to the prophet and says, and he showed him this valley of dry bones, and he says, can these bones live, son of man? And Ezekiel says, Lord, you know. And he began to speak his word, and slowly but surely the bones came together with the sinews and the muscles, and they raised up to be a great army. And Paul is saying, as the Jews are reached, and as I maintain hope, that they will come to faith, that they will embrace Christ, I look forward to seeing a remnant. I look forward to seeing the growth of that remnant and the life out of their deadness as a result of embracing Jesus Christ. Well, in summary, I'd like to offer you in closing here uh, some things that this passage reminds us by way of application. There are four things I'd like to mention. Number one, this passage reminds us of God's faithfulness and patience with his people. God's faithfulness and patience with his people. We look at Paul. We look at Israel. We could say both of them were hopeless cases. And yet, the Lord worked sovereignly, supernaturally, in their lives and in that country. God is faithful and patient with his people, and he is faithful and patient with you. The Bible says, He who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the very day of Christ Jesus. And Hebrews calls the Lord Jesus the author and the perfecter of your faith. God doesn't save people. He doesn't draw people. He doesn't claim people in order to do a halfway job. He's always at work, always bringing to the forefront that which He wants in us as He works in us to bring what is pleasing in His sight. Are you discouraged today? Sometimes we may feel discouraged. We may feel like God isn't even active in our lives. As many, many people in the Bible have cried out, especially guys like Jeremiah. But the Lord always comes back, I am here. I am faithful to finish what I started in you. So you be faithful to me. God is faithful and patient with you. And we ought to practice that same type of faithfulness and patience with each other as we seek to love each other and help each other grow. A second observation, that God brings salvation out of transgression. One of the most remarkable things about this passage is that transgression, sin, led to the Gentile salvation. Israel's failure led to Gentile salvation. I think God has a sense of humor because a practical application of that must be this. One must recognize that he or she is a sinner before receiving salvation. One must recognize that he or she is a sinner before receiving salvation. God has to show us the darkness of our hearts. Not just the darkness of our actions. The darkness of our motives. The darkness of the thoughts that go through our mind. 
He has to show us how far away we are. And whenever there's transgression, as Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God brings salvation out of transgression. That's why he tells us to not hide in the darkness, but come into the light. Admit who we are, sinners, and seek his salvation. A third observation, that God brings fulfillment out of failure. God uses our failures in life to drive us closer to him and to remind us of his steadfast, permanent love for us. You say, John, how does God do that? Well, one example is David. David's sin with Bathsheba was a horrible thing. But as a result of that sinful act, what did God do? He brought about forgiveness and he led David to write two of the most beautiful psalms in all of the Bible. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Where David speaks so personally and passionately about having his sin forgiven. About being restored. About being able to teach others. Perhaps you're in the midst of a personal failure. Don't despair. Don't despair. Those who turn to Christ receive forgiveness, peace, and strength to do what Paul says. Forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. I press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. As Isaiah says, he brings forth beauty out of ashes. Have you failed lately? You feel like you can't go on? No, the Lord Jesus would say, get up, confess, and get back in the race. For you are my chosen child, and you are forgiven of your sins. And my love for you and my grace will never outrun you. They will always be with you. Finally, that God brings reconciliation out of rejection. In spite of Israel's rejection, the sovereign Lord of the universe intends to give life to some who are dead. He brings hope in a hopeless situation. I was reading an article from CNN yesterday about Peter Matabazi. Maybe you don't know him. <clears throat> There's reason for that because he's from Kampala, Uganda. He moved to the United States a while back. He grew up in Uganda, poor on the streets. He was abandoned by his parents when he was basically a preschooler. And he walked the streets and he made money by offering to pay people to carry their groceries. Occasionally he would steal an apple or an orange and he would have something to eat for the day. But Peter Matsubatsi moved to the United States because one day, while he was on the streets trying to find some money, a man walked up to him and said, What is your name? He said, Nobody has ever done that in my life. And I told him my name, and he had compassion on me. And he put him, Peter, in a boarding school. He went on to get his degree, and he moved to the United States. And he decided he wanted to start a family, but he wasn't married yet. But that didn't stop him. He started to entertain foster children. As a single man from Uganda, becoming a United States citizen... He brought in six to eight children in his home, all of whom were white. People would stop him on the street, and the kids were with him, and they'd say to the kids, Who are, where's your parents at? 
assuming that he was not involved in their lives like he was. But he was. He loved the children. According to 1921, or excuse me, 2021, there were 400,000 children in the foster care system. And only 3% of single parents are helping and raise foster children. And there's even a smaller percentage of single parents who are from a foreign nation as an immigrant. And yet this man, God is using to touch hearts and lives. He's a Christian. He wanted to go study theology at the Master Seminary out in California, connected with John MacArthur. There is in his life a move of Christ because this man experienced God's grace and kindness. This man knows what it's like to live with the failures of other people and the hurt and the pain of rejection. This man knows that even outside of failure can be fulfillment and that God could use him to be a blessing to many other children because of his love and the love that he has received from the Lord Jesus. God can change any circumstance and he is always at work in the middle of your circumstances to bring forth what is beautiful in his eternal sight. Don't despair. Seek the Lord's face. Seek his face continually in the midst of your life, whatever is going on. And if you've never received life from death, I invite you to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and watch him bring beauty out of the ashes of your soul. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this chapter, this passage. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for such a great salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you're not done with your people. Your people Israel or your people in Christ Jesus all over the world. Continue to work in our hearts that which is pleasing in your sight. I pray, Lord, that you would sovereignly reach out to those who are lost, that you would also disciple those who are saved. And get all the glory, Lord, for this message today. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.